White, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, really appreciate you uh, you're taking your time. Thank you for having me on and hopefully I shall be not too jet lagged and not too sleepy with you. Um, if I went back in time and, and said to a, a young Sam White that um, she'd be uh, running two successful companies in Australia and the UK, um, a younger you would say what? Um, I think I would say absolutely fantastic. I think, you know, I, I think I knew from a young age that I wanted to do my own thing. I don't think I could have ever have hoped that it would give me as much joy and adventure as it has done. So I think I'd be I'd be delighted. I'd be very happy with uh, future Sam as past Sam. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. And do, do you feel that you were uh, an entrepreneurial person from a young age or do you think it's something that uh, just kind of grew within you? Um, I do. I'm not sure whether it's... Um, more circumstance of your actual environment than genetics. I'll, although I do have quite a lot of entrepreneurs in my sort of family history, so there's probably something. I was joking. Um, I was dyslexic as a kid, and I've been reading up a lot on dyslexia and what part of the brain it affects. And it's in the same area of the brain as ADHD, um, also as um, ad addiction issues and problems with uh, understanding risk. <laughs> so um, that's the reason that they, they say that um, dyslexics, there's, there's a lot of entrepreneurs that are dyslexics. And it's actually because this is a dysfunction in the brain, like normal people wouldn't take the same kind of risks that, that people that get into business do. So I think there's an element of a, a sort of biological element to it. But I actually think a lot was to do with my childhood and my experiences as a child kind of pushed me down this road. Yeah, no, absolutely. Let's um, just take a, I know it's always a difficult question to summarise a career as, uh, you know, as, as, as good as yours. Um, could you just give us a kind of summary to your career to, to kind of this point? I am pretty old, so there's a lot to fit in, to be fair. <laughs> Um, yeah, I mean, I set my first company up when I was 24 from a sister's conservatory. Um, realized I was unemployable. I'd had like one job out of uni, didn't really like somebody else telling me what to do, wanted my independence and and kind of, I think in the initial instance, I just wanted a bit of freedom. Um, and I had this idea that if I started this business from my sister's conservatory, I'd be able to choose my own hours. Uh, I'd be able to do a few hours in the day. I was making appointments for other businesses to start with and then it kind of evolved into this claims management business. Um, but to, to start with, I thought I'd be able to go and have barbecues in the back garden with my sister and all of these things. And then <laughs> it kind of mushroomed out. So um, for the first 10 years, I was building a claims management business that was working with insurance companies, built that up to um, significant size and scale. Um, we were turning over sort of 18 million by 2010, started in 1999, very profitable. I got very big for my boots and went and moved to Beverly Hills and had a lot of fun over there and did some crazy stuff and got Robbie Williams to sing at my wedding and, you know, again, had lots and lots of adventures. Um, and then um, the business hit some challenges in 2010, had to scale back a little bit, change of direction. Um, and I ended up working much more closely with insurance companies and then ultimately setting up my own insurance business. 
So now I have um, sort of three businesses in the UK all around the motor insurance space. Um, and I launched Stellar in Australia two years ago, which is a brand that is focused on designing uh, financial services products around women because there's not many women in financial services and you can see it in product design, engagement and just pretty much everything else that I encounter in the industry. So, um, yeah, it's, you know, I've had lots of fun, got involved in lots of different things and been able to uh, really uh, feed into my desire for joy and adventure. I always say business shouldn't just be about business. If it is, you're doing something wrong. And most of the people that I've met that are just purely doing business to make money are very miserable individuals indeed and not people that you would wish to have around for dinner. So I try and make it more about having the best experience of life and getting to connect with other people and build teams and build stuff that we're all excited about and proud of. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, there's a lot to unpack there. And we'll definitely kind of throughout the, the, the coming minutes here, we'll definitely look to, to, to hop into those. Um, the one thing I wanted to come back to was you being unemployable. And I think that's something that a lot of entrepreneurs say, um, kind of similar to kind of the brain wiring you were talking about before. Is that is that a lot of the, uh, is that a trait that you find along uh, m- most of your peers? I mean, Look, I, I, I say it jokingly, and actually I'm hoping with the change in psychology around businesses that people like me do become more employable. And, and by that, what I mean is when, when I took my first job, uh, it was very much in a command and control type business environment where somebody at the top has an idea about the way that things should be done and they tell the staff it has to be done this way with this process and there's no deviations now for somebody like me that's hellish like I like to find my own path and um, I like to feel my way through things and you know be nimble and open and so working for somebody else seemed to take all of that away from me and it's one of the things that I've strived really hard in my own kind of leadership journey to um, get past is is this idea that just because people work for you doesn't mean that you are the giver of all knowledge and instruction. Like what, what you should be doing is creating environments in which people can um, test and learn, they can grow themselves, they can, you know, they, they can feel that joy of creating something and building something as, as well. So, yes, I think most entrepreneurs would consider themselves to be unemployable because they don't want to be told what to do. But actually creating working environments in which people that feel that way can also enjoy their working life is um, something that I would like to see a lot more of. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. And, you know, kind of looking a little bit further into yourself, um, you did a psychology degree. Um, you have your own podcast called Human Business. Um, you've clearly got a fascination with the mind and what makes people tick. Where, where did that come from? Where did that drive to look into that a little bit more come from, do you think? I mean, I, I think, you know, I did do the psychology degree. I'm not sure that the two is, are as closely linked as, as you would think, mostly because I didn't go to a lot of my lectures. I was <laughs> I was uh, quite badly behaved during my university years, so I missed a lot of the course, I'm not going to lie. Um, I think my fascination with psychology has come from a desire to understand myself so I, I suffered quite badly with panic attacks in my 20s. 
Um, and I was also um, uh, self-sabotaging. So I was, you know, I was five stone overweight in my 20s. I smoked like a chimney. I, well, I was suffering with these panic attacks. I, I'd always done quite well at work, but that was like the only quadrant of my psyche that was really going well for me. And I knew inherently that that wasn't going to cut it from a life viewpoint. And I wanted to understand how I could um, really get control over the the life that I led. And, and for me, the only way that you can do that is by controlling your own brain. So I, I really wanted to understand how that all worked. And I find it fascinating. Like I was chatting to somebody about it the other day. I was saying we have the power. I've read a lot on neuroplasticity and, you know, how the brain forms itself and how it can change over time, both positive and negative. And I believe that we have the power to, I, I describe it as building the home you want to live in and that your brain is that home that you want to live in. And you can either live in shantytown, <laughs> which I have done on occasion, or you can live in, you know, a beautiful mansion in wherever is your favorite place in the world. But it takes quite a lot of work because, you know, the bricks that you need to build to build the house in your brain uh, is, is about repetitive behaviors and habits and consciously choosing the thoughts that we have and choosing the behaviors that we exhibit. And I, I, for me, that all feeds back into how you build good businesses because you are also kind of the custodian of other people's pathways in the way that you create that environment. And, and you know, I do genuinely want people that I work with to feel joyful while they're at work and, you know, for it to add to their life, not take away. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, you know, that, that link between um, neuroplasticity and kind of, you know, your own mindset leading to leadership is a, is a very interesting link. And, um, you know, doing the research, I think I, I laughed out loud when I saw that you were the CEO that fired yourself. Um, could you just tell us a little bit about this story and, and how that kind of came about? Yeah, no. So, I, look, I, I again, on a personal basis, I've always been a big fan of therapy in a working environment, I've always been um, interested in coaching and how that kind of transpires. So I started working with a coach a few years ago just to um, shine the light in the dark corners that I can't see. Like, what am I missing in terms of my leadership style and how I'm showing up for work, etc. And it worked really, really well. Um, and I, it worked so well that I wanted to get the coach involved with the team. And they started working on a one-to-one -one basis. And I saw some real improvements from a team viewpoint. But then I started to kind of challenge this whole concept of uh, a CEO because it, it feels intuitively um, wrong to me. Like I, I think high-performance teams are that they're, they're, the team in of itself is what's driving the business forward. So the minute you put that that structure in where there's one person above that team, you, what, what you do is diminish accountability and empowerment be, because there's that natural tendency to defer then to this ultimate leader. And when I look back on, you know, some of the challenges that I'd had as a business, uh, it was it was challenges, I think, around that, that I wasn't actually relinquishing 
that responsibility to the team. And so when things were getting tough, it was always coming back to me, which fundamentally you get frustrated at, about. And I, I speak to a lot of um, business owners who say the same thing, like, why can't they just, why can't they just do the do? Or like, why do I have to come in and fix the problems? Or And of course, you're always creating that dynamic yourself. You're creating that rescue kind of scenario where you lead them for a period of time something goes wrong and then you're having to dive in and save it which is a really dysfunctional kind of thing so um I started to toy with the idea of removing myself and kind of replacing the role with a coach role for for, for the team and people like to think of that as you know the CEO or the MD or whatever but actually um, I, I really do believe that businesses would function better just with a management team that was being coached by an appropriate coach. So I fired myself and replaced myself with the psychologist that was coaching me and coaching the team. Um, and, you know, it, it, the, the theory absolutely does stand. You know, they had a great year. They've done really well with it. Um, we're, we're still experimenting with different sort of elements to that and to the structure, but I am um, cautiously optimistic about it as a, a general business philosophy. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's such a such an interesting, you know, little little wrinkle onto something that is very much the norm. And you know, in many ways, you are a disruptor. Um, you know, especially with Stella Insurance, for example, in in the uh, in Australia. Um, has this disruptive and nature? Now. There we go, <laughs> and in the UK, exactly. Um, has this disruptive nature always been within you, and how does that kind of how did that manifest itself, Ernie? Yeah, so I was actually looking at an old school report the other day that actually said it has a tendency to be disruptive. I think distracted and distracting was one of the statements that that they made about me. So it's obviously a, a common theme. Hey, look, you know, I think the joy of life is to be curious and to be curious is to be a bit disruptive because if you just accept the status quo, if you just say that everything is okay and it's fine as it is and I'm just going to go along with it, then you're not going to disrupt anything. But I think as soon as you start to become curious, you're going to ask the question, is, you know, is this the best we can do? Is this as good as it gets? And and as soon as you start from that mindset, then things open up and opportunities open up and and hopefully you can install a bit of positive change into things, you know, not without failure and not without some pain a lot of the time. It's sometimes easier, I think, to to go down the path most trodden. But I, I, I don't think I've got any choice in the matter. It's just... Uh, uh, a natural uh, predisposition and a little bit of a cheeky nature. That's always a good thing. Yeah, no, I, I agree. <laughs> um, so obviously you have these business ventures throughout the world. So, you know, you, you were in, uh, had a business in, in the US for a while, obviously Australia and in the UK. Um, as far as a leader, um, what differences did you notice between leading in each of those countries? And was there any lessons that you maybe took, like, oh, this worked really well in the States, but not so much in the in the UK, for example? Was that something that you came across? Was there any kind of crossover? Um, so I think there's always cultural differences. Uh, I definitely had some barriers when trying to engage. I, I, I tried to set up in California um, and they... For instance, the Californians have a very different sense of humour 
to the Northern English <laughs> sense of humour. So there was a couple of times where I def really mortally offended the locals with what I thought was just a bit of dark English humour and they thought was a sign of a serious psychological issue. <laughs> um, so you, you do hit those kind of cultural um, boundaries. There's also different rules of the game. So if you're raising money in the States, um, and this is something that I've learned as I've got older and wiser and, and had it more exposure to things, um, they raise money in a different way to the way that we would raise in the UK. They have um, different strategies, different approaches. And I think when I first went over to the States, I was um, very naive and just a bit, you know, overly... Uh, enthusiastic and, and not as well planned as I, I could have been. I just, one of my um, friends who um, I've done a couple of deals with in the past was belly laughing. And he was like, you did just literally just jumped on a plane and like landed and decided you were setting up this company. You, you've not, you've not done any of the preamble. I was like, yeah, that's kind of, that's, that's true. Whereas Australia, I think I, I went into a little bit older, a little bit wiser I think culturally, I find myself much more aligned with the Aussies. Um, and I I actually really enjoy doing business there. And I guess this is different for everybody. And it's a, um, I did a keynote in Sydney uh, last week. And the main theme of it for me was like, why do, why do I do business? And, you know, if I'm really honest about it, it is that um, desire for, a sense of joy and adventure and connection drives drives me to to want to build businesses and, and, and do businesses. And I think if you know that about yourself, finding a place that that feels the most aligned to you is really important. So if I was incredibly process-driven and left-brain focused, I might love doing business in Germany. I, you know, I, I inherent basis I think I probably would struggle doing business in Germany because it doesn't really fit with my personality and the things that I enjoy and 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 so forth so I think as an entrepreneur it is also important to align that stuff people may go okay well what's the size of the market and where's the you know where's the synergies in what you're doing and what, what do you think is the opportunity but actually if it doesn't feel right for you and there isn't that fundamental connection for you then you probably shouldn't be doing it. And whenever I go to Australia, I just have this immense sense of hope and joy and excitement, which for me tells me that it's absolutely the right place for me to be doing business. And I look for that now when I'm looking at new opportunities. It's not just, you know, what's the next logical step? It has to tick that box for me as well. Yeah, it's so interesting. That's something that's not really thought about too much um, in, in, you know, in expansion as far as that goes. So it's, it's a really interesting little wrinkle that um, for sure. And, you know, if, if we look at something like um, something that every one of our audience pretty much needs to do at some stage in their business career, that's, that's looking for funding. So what has your funding journey been like? Obviously, you know, beginning from uh, the, the, you know, the, the start of, of Freedom Brokers, for example, um, you know, what, what was that journey kind of like? And then how did that change as you as you opened um, Stellar Insurance later on? Yeah, I mean, I had a pretty uh, torrid time trying to raise money from the start. And I talk about it quite a lot because there's statistically it is much harder to raise money as a woman 
um, than than it is as as a guy. I think there's like two pence from every pound goes to female only founders. And I think interestingly, some of that does come down to the difference between right brain, left brain approach. Um, and it's one of the things that I'm trying to shine a light on is financial services is very male dominated. Men um, have a over-reliance on their left brain, their analytical, their process, their numbers, KPIs, you know, more, more, more. Um, women tend to be more uh, sat in the right side of the brain, which is connection, collaboration, uh, creativity. And you see a real lack of, of that in financial services you can feel it. Like if you engage with a financial service brand, even just from a marketing viewpoint, it's it's not connecting with you on an emotional basis. They tend to sell people products. They don't kind of think of them as an individual and, you know, what does that individual need and how can I enhance their life and enable the things that they, that they want to do? Um, so, you know, funding for me, I think I, I really struggled with it because probably when I was approaching banks etc they were um not seeing what they were expecting to see now it's ironic because i bootstrapped all of my business grew them from scratch they ended up multi-million pound profitable every business i've ever started um well not <laughs> some of them haven't i've started some projects that haven't been successful but all of the ones that i've carried on with ha- have been profitable and have grown substantially and, you know, been great businesses. But I wasn't able to get any funding. I actually um, got my my dad to pretend he was part of the business at one point just so I could get an overdraft, um, which was was pretty early on. And then um, as, as the business developed over time, I just learned how to leverage what we had so I would go to larger partners and do projects with them where they would put up the funding and I would get the deliverables for them. And that's how we managed to kind of move forward. So Stella was the first time that I really got proper investment um, in in my whole career. And um, it was, you know, I, I went out and had a chat with a VC over there and it was like the first one that I met was like I, I love it I love what you're doing and you know I'm gonna I'm gonna get behind you and so um they came in as a minority investor and it's it's been absolutely fantastic and they've been very supportive and they kind of get where we're we're going with it so um I'm now on a fundraise again because we've got global expansion plans for Stella and um I'm hoping that my experience of the whole thing is is different um, to what it's been in the past, but it's probably too early d- days to to really call it. Yeah, I mean, I mean, you know, you touch on your own podcast a lot about female funding and, and how difficult that journey is. Um, have you been quite shocked on your, you know, kind of running your own podcast and, and listening to various stories? Have you been quite shocked at quite how bad that systemic kind of um, funding model is for female founders? Yeah, I mean, to be honest, um, me and a few of the women that um, I, because I've got a, a wide network of female entrepreneur friends. Unfortunately, we've all got good senses of humour. Otherwise, I think um, I think we, we may have um, ended up in a very dark place a, a long time ago. We were going to do like a list of appalling things that people have said to us in investment um, meetings in the past, because some of them you just 
honestly would not um you you just wouldn't think would be said um and it does you know it i, I still hear it every day from people where they've you know had an unfortunate set of circumstance and a conversation that you you just wouldn't expect to be had um in this day and age but i i do think it's the last bastion of um male dominance in a in a toxic way i think you know this the stock market, the 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 kind of the big funds. It's very obvious to me when you engage that there's still a lot of work to to be done. But of course, there is um, there's cognitive bias, but there's also uh, there's a privilege that comes from being the person that is able to bestow the the, the funds on somebody. And um, the, the problem with that, I think, sometimes is that even when bad behaviours occur, they're not called out because people are in a position of vulnerability. So a lot of the women that I deal with may have had situations where they're, you know, like this doesn't seem right or it's not it's not an appropriate question or whatever. But they don't want to say anything because they don't want to cut off the oxygen and and not you know not be able to grow their business and make a change and so forth. So it becomes, I think it becomes um, a self fulfilling environment that doesn't get the shift change that it needs because because of that. And that's a shame. Yeah, no, absolutely. Have you, have you noticed since you you know started or tried to fundraise for your first business up to now? Have you noticed a change, or is it still pretty much the same as it was? I think it depends, and this has been really interesting for me this time. What is really heartening for me is there's absolutely more funds that are coming in that aren't um, aren't like that, that are really positive, that want to engage with women, that, that understand women. Um, and understand that there's a problem that needs to be solved for and are not turning a blind eye to it and are trying to engage appropriately. And I've had some fantastic conversations with people that you can tell really get it and want to engage and want to kind of support. I've also still had the traditional conversations with the who've, you know, told me that uh, do not mention to the investors that your bigger concern is um, around... um, the, the sort of um, charitable side of the business and and the connectivity in the community, like no investor wants to hear that. And it, it, that for me is like, okay, you know, you can tell that it's it's a particular type of individual um, and a, t- a particular type of dynamic. But fortunately, it, th- there are other good elements now, whereas probably when I started out, there was only that one type of individual and it was a bit disheartening because every time you went into a meeting, you're having the same conversation where all they want to talk about is numbers and they don't really want to talk about purpose or um, connectivity in any way, shape or form. And the, the irony is like we smash our numbers. I was, I was sat with this guy and he was telling me how, you know, um, you, you, you don't want to give this money to charity and you don't want to do this, that and the other. And um, I said, I take it, you just want to have a look at the numbers. And he was like, oh, I, I don't even look at them because they're never right. I was like, ours have always been right. We've never we've never missed a, a target. So for all this noise and, and bombastic, it's a bit like Donald Trump, you know, very noisy, very loud, very kind of, 
that that archetypical business person dynamic but actually there's not a lot of substance to it and um their perception on things is is completely skewered and and actually a lot of the female founded businesses that i engage with are very successful and and can you know really hit their numbers whilst also making sure that they do something sustainable and something that that, that um motivates them on a personal level it's so interesting to hear you talk about the investors in that way because you know especially with with stella and the brilliant uh charitable side of that business where i believe tell me if i'm incorrect but you give five dollars to every policy that gets taken out um and that goes towards um women's charities um to help against domestic abuse um Whereas that is a brilliant USP for a customer to hear that an investor doesn't see it in the same way is is quite interesting and it's quite yeah it's it's almost a disconnect there isn't it? It's it's, it's the wrong investor wouldn't see that the right absolutely would and you know the thing for me is so yeah in Australia we do five dollars from every policy to women and girls emergency centre um, in the UK we partnered with the Fly Anyway Foundation that actually supports survivors of domestic abuse in launching their own companies, which is just like, we absolutely love that whole sustainable cycle of, you know, women getting out of abuse and then thriving and hopefully being um, kind of beacons of hope for other women that will, will be in that situation. Now, of course, that will hit our profitability, but we're still profitable. And then the thing is, you know, how much money do you need and how much of a return do you... I, I think these are questions that you, you do need to ask of business because do we want to make a 30%, you know, profit return and also help a community of vulnerable people or do you want to make a 40% return and help nobody? Like that's that's a really simple question for me that's very easily answered and you know i i think anybody that doesn't get that is it is not going to be somebody that wants to come along on on a journey with us what i'm hoping is that in time more and more investors will also want to build businesses that aren't just taking a return we we don't need any more billionaires i mean i saw an article recently saying that you know we're waiting for the next trillionaire and it kind of made me feel a little bit sick i'll be honest it was like is this really what we're aspiring to is to have this tiny percentage of people with so much money that they couldn't possibly spend any of it like swanning around in super yachts and doing you know it doesn't it doesn't make any sense to me and look i'm i have had lots of fun over the years and spent lots of money on stupid stuff and entrepreneurs you know do want to be rewarded for the work that they do but there does have to be some sense check at a certain point and say that the, the there's got to be a balance here in that i can work really hard and get rewarded but also the, the thing that i'm doing should have some wider benefit to everybody else as well. And, I, you know, that doesn't seem like an unreasonable point of view to me. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, I just want to come back to something that you said a little bit earlier, where you mentioned that some of your projects that you've done haven't been successful. And just onto the theme of failure in, in general, um, 
There is a view, um, maybe not so much in the entrepreneurial community, but in the wider community, that failure is very much a negative. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I love a good failure. Uh, when we go back to neuroplasticity again, it's, you know, you cannot make change without suffering failure. It is absolutely impossible. So, um, you know, and it depends how you frame failure. You know, the, 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 for me, trying stuff and it not working out is is totally fine. I think most people are way overly concerned about what other people think. And actually, other people don't care. My my general experience of people is that they're far too obsessed with their own stuff to really give a damn whether you made a success out of that thing or not. I mean, maybe some people that you've you managed to piss off at some point in the past would take some joy if you if you fell over. But is that, you know, is that the end of the world? I saw a mem this morning of um don't accept criticism from somebody that you wouldn't go to for advice. And I think that that's actually a really great statement. It, it, the same thing with with failure. Somebody that's going to revel in you having a bit of a hard time is unlikely to be somebody that you want to engage with on a general basis. So let's just take them out of the pot. And everybody else is probably way too busy to care about your individual set of circumstance. So if you, if you move the fear of what other people think out what you're left with is just a growth experience. So, you know, the first time I went in um, a gym when I was five stone overweight and smoking 50 cigarettes, it was not a pretty sight. And I, you know, I remember getting on an exercise bike and I'd never done any exercise whatsoever and starting to pedal and lasting maybe a minute and a half until I kind of killed over sideways. And if you'd witnessed that scene, it, you know, you would think this woman is never, ever going in a gym again. That, you know, that was an utter disaster. But I did. And, you know, it, it took a long time and lots and lots of embarrassing, unfortunate sets of circumstance. But eventually I, you know, I fell in love with exercising and it became part of my life and part of who I am. And um, it brings me an awful lot of calm and peace and, and joy in my life now. And it's the same with businesses, you know, just because you try something and it doesn't quite work out. I mean, my business in the States ultimately wasn't successful. I had to come back to the UK because of some changes. I could look at that and go, oh, well, it was a complete failure. But actually, it gave me a confidence to set businesses up abroad I met some incredible people and had lots of fun and adventure with them. Um, you know, I, I learned a lot from that process, which I was then able to take and bring into other sets of circumstance. And one of my favorite expressions is, a, is apparently it's a Chinese proverb and it's maybe good, maybe bad, who knows? And the idea is that when something occurs, you have absolutely no idea whether it was a good thing or a bad thing you think in the moment that you know so they use the example of somebody who wins the lottery and is like oh my god I won the lottery that's a great thing and then they're so happy with the fact that they won the lottery that they buy their um their son an expensive car and he then ends up having a car accident and hurting himself now 
that's you know that's an example of you think it's good turns out not to be so good yep that's the that's the thing about life is that all of these experiences you don't know in the moment whether they are actually going to add you some value further down the line and I think once you've reframed that experience of failure then nothing really phases you it's just oh okay well obviously there's something that I need to learn out of this and I'm sure it will come back up for me at some point in the future I think the state's is equally as concerned with perception and and status and all of those sorts of things as as they are in the UK. And I think this is a falsehood that we tell ourselves about the difference between America and the UK. What they are very comfortable with is using other people's money to test the theory on stuff. And if they go bust, they don't give it a second thought and move on to the next. I'm not 100% positive that that's a really healthy and um, positive dynamic that we should have more of in the UK because it seems to be um, in some sets of circumstance quite reckless with other people's money. I know for me I've always been very careful that when something hasn't been successful, that I have mitigated any damage to other people, whether it be staff or investors or or, or whatever. I've I've always been very conscious of that. And I I think you should be conscious of that. I don't think you should be reckless with other people's money when you consider, you know, how difficult it is to make it in the first place. Yeah, absolutely. That's so so interesting that. And I think there's also a... uh, definitely something that's happening at the moment especially in the tech scene where you're getting these companies with massive valuations but haven't actually turned a profit um which is always an an interesting dynamic isn't it because you know you just they just like you said just raising money for the sake of raising money um and yeah they've never actually done anything with that money it's yeah so (laughs) i having not raised money before and trying to understand the way that the game is played I was recommended a few investor books, which I read and kind of went through it all. And um, this is a bit tongue in cheek. But when I stepped back from it, I was like, oh, so it's a giant Ponzi scheme then. Like, (laughs) this is this is what we're dealing with. And I, I spoke to this investor because, again, like if you've bootstrapped, you can't spend a pound until you've made a pound. So everything about the business is how do I get it into a profit with cash in the bank? Because if I've got cash in the bank, then I can spend that cash. That's, you know, that is that is business to me. That is how business exists. And I was chatting to this um, investor and he was saying, um, I'm not really concerned with all of that. What I need to know is that the second round of fundraising, there's going to be an increase in value. So, so it's a lot of storytelling and working up the value of this this thing. So, you know, okay, day one, the business is valued at a million and you've got 10% of it. The the um, onus on the, the, the kind of core investors is to make that million be valued at 10 million. But as you say, it doesn't necessarily have to be linked to any trading. It, it just has to be that the story is now more, Um, powerful than it was to start with. And we see this played out to an extreme example with things like WeWork. 
you know, and, and the story has gets more and more fantastical to increase that value more and more. So you go from a simple business model that says I'm going to buy a building and I'm going to rent out, you know, tr transactional spaces to businesses, which actually makes a lot of sense. And I think probably to start with, the business was on track to make a profit. And then investors get involved and want to up the value of that. And so the story has to become much bigger and, and then step in the godlike investor that is, in fact, creating a godlike existence for everybody where, you know, we're all going to live and work together and it's going to be this magical community and there's this. But, and the story gets bigger and bigger and bigger and the value gets bigger and bigger and bigger. But actually the underlying numbers that are connected with the business it almost doesn't matter. And I, I find that fascinating and highly disturbing at the same time, because this um, imaginary valuation of this imaginary unicorn, and we even use the word unicorn, which, you know, they're really, <laughs> they're really taking the piss out of us. Um, this imaginary unicorn um, is actually being given a lot of resources as a result of this valuation that's then pouring out of the uh, of the world in a very real way and enables people to have these giant super yachts and bubbles whilst we've got a cost of living crisis and people really struggling. So um, <laughs> that sounds a, a bit like I'm on my soapbox, but just from an observational viewpoint, I look at that and go, I just, does anybody, you know, when you feel like you're in the matrix, sometimes you look around and go, is, are we all okay with this? This, this makes sense to everyone. Just checking. Okay. No problem. Yeah. Yeah, no, no, absolutely. It's, it's interesting one to watch and, you know, there's certainly some big names out there where it looked like, you know, that something could go wrong at any minute. So we'll see, we'll see how that ends up really. Um, unfortunately we are coming to the end of the podcast now. Um, it's now time for a very special segment. We've teamed up with the Jill Dando News Center to bring you the good news postcard. Your question today comes from Oscar, age 12. My name's Oscar from the Jiwadandu News Centre at World Community School Academy. My question for you is, what is the hardest challenge you have ever faced as a business? Hey, Oscar, that's a great question. Um, yeah, it sends me right back. Um, I think the hardest challenge I ever had as a business was um, when, probably the first time I had a big challenge, when uh, there was some big changes legally in the market in the sector that I was in and I lost 60% of my revenue lines in a four-week period and had to completely reconfigure my business and, and find a, a new way to, to trade. And I think the hard thing about it was probably it was just first off the back of um, a lot of uh, success and so I, I wasn't really prepared for that level of a shock um, and the second was just the speed with which I had to deal with it so great question. Thanks Sam that's a, that's a, that's a great question um, and a great answer too so um, our next question is uh, we are obviously business leaders so what would you say makes a great business leader? Uh, I think that the best trait for a business leader is self-reflection um, being able to um, appreciate the things that you perhaps haven't got quite right and make some changes to move forward.
And do you have any final words for our audience today? Um, just have fun. Like whatever you're doing, life is very short. Uh, business can give you this um, idea that you need to be very serious all the time and that everything is very serious. Um, and I don't subscribe to that. So whatever you're doing, make sure you're enjoying it. Otherwise, it's going to be a very long and painful journey. Again, great advice. Thank you for that. And uh, where can people follow your journey online and not on social media? Um, I'm on all the usual platforms. I probably am most chatty on LinkedIn because I get to use more words and I've still not got the hang of Twitter. So um, Sam White, uh, Stellar Insurance on LinkedIn, you'll find me. But I've also got uh, Instagram, Sam White Entrepreneur um, and Sam White CEO on Twitter. Twitter.